Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee or wine and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that do not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Chaz and Karen Brenchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 138, Mars Attacks, a trilogy. I chose that really because I was thinking on the last episode where we got to say, hey, my goodness, you got a three book contract, which is amazing. We didn't really talk about any of the mechanics or ideas about a trilogy. So as everybody, of course, has out there and run out and purchased Three Twins at the Crater School, which you described, and Dust Up at the Crater School, which has been released since then, there's one more coming. Tell us a little bit about it, if you wouldn't mind, your process of, I've got to write three books now. Is that terrifying? Is it wonderful? And what do you do first? Okay, so when I was first commissioned for a trilogy, which was not this, and it was back in the 90s, that's really scary. Um, well, your first as, trilogy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially as I had conceived it as four books, and my first editor said, okay, we'll just commission the first three for now and add the fourth in later. And and then he left the company and the guy who took over eventually, when I was halfway through writing book three, said, please, will you wrap it up in three? It's not selling well enough to go to four vo- volumes. So that was difficult. And I didn't like that at all. Um, and And the other two trilogies that I pitched and published back in the 90s and the early 2000s, um, only went to two volumes each. <laughs> I actually really liked duologies. Yeah, I know. Um, uh, they, 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 were, they were unintentional duologies. Um, but anyway, though, this one I'm, I'm much more at ease with because it's not actually a trilogy. It's a series. I have, I have a contract for three novels and a book of shorter pieces, uh, novellas and short stories. And we will see if it goes on from there. But, you know, my model here is Eleanor M. Brent Dyer. We haven't haven't actually talked about what I'm doing. Um, We should probably say that for people who didn't hear us last time. I am writing a series of English girls' boarding school stories on Mars. These These are the classic tales of the 1930s, which my mother grew up reading, except that they're on Mars, so there are aliens and Russian spies and, and, and all sorts of other exciting things as well. Um, yeah, so Eleanor, bless her, she published her first chalet school book in 1926, I think, and her last, when she, after she died, in 1970. So there are 60 of these books. I do not propose to write 60 I, no, no, absolutely not. This Were is they her all written by her, I mean, or did she, she have ghostwriters in the years. Um Yeah, no, totally her. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't. I'm not going to write sixty. I might very well write more than three novels and and a book of short stories. <laughs> Oscar Wilde was a great man in many ways. Yeah, so um, you know, it's. Oscar Wilde says that anyone thing. can write a three-volume novel. It really thing. requires a complete ignorance of life I and don't literature. Actually, how to know know how to keep producing a book's worth of action when there isn't an overarching arc like there is in a trilogy? Yeah, I, I knew where my books were going, where all three of the books were going. 
back then. And and for this one, yeah, I, each 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 book is separate. Um, it's it's the next term, uh, which which is the model that Eleanor Brent Dyer originated with the Chalet School books and, and a lot of other writers of the period picked up on. And I just love it. So that's what I'm doing. Well, the thing is, there are each one is its own year, but that doesn't mean that all so, the girls disappeared. It's on own term, sorry. Yeah. But it doesn't mean all the girls disappeared. There's a continuation yeah. and all of and the mistresses yeah. are all there. And you know, and so those are continuing characters. And of course the um the creator school is in fact, you know, its own character itself. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Well, I hope so. Going on to that, I mean, when you're thinking about this, each of them is a different term. It almost feels like in modern movies, if you've saved the school in the first novel, you have to save Mars in the second novel and save all of the universe in the third novel. I mean, when does Ultron show up? Um, the lovely thing about this particular genre is that it's incredibly conservative. Nothing changes. The ethos of the school, the moral structures of the staff go on unchanged. I mean, in, in Eleanor's case, from the mid-1920s to 1970, um, yeah, she passed through, these books bridge the 30s, the rise of fascism, the war, the 50s, the 60s, and nothing in the school changes. I mean, they respond to, they have to escape Nazis um, because they, the, the, the school was in the Austrian Tyrol originally. Um, so when, when the Second World War comes along, they have to flee through a secret tunnel. It's very exciting. But the, yeah, the moral standing of the school doesn't change at all. Um, so no, there is no requirement to up the scale of anything from book to book. All I want to, all I want to do is tell different stories with every book. Um, featuring, you know, a, a different new girl. And we had discussed a little bit last time the matter of character development and change that in your version, as opposed to how they were originally written in the 30s, where, you know, Alan Quartermain remained Alan Quartermain and Conan remained Quartermain. He didn't grow. There was no... But you have an opportunity to actually let girls grow for like the modern reader to say, you know, that bully became less of a bully when she learned X, Y, Z. Yeah, um, I am hopefully doing that, trying to. I haven't had a bully yet. Bullying would be so frowned upon. I suspect as soon as, as, soon as rumour of it reached the staff, it, there would be crushing. But yeah, no, that's a really good idea. That may be book four. Um, <laughs> thank you, Jeannie. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. I, I want to... I mean, that, yeah, that's the thing. Um, Eleanor and her ilk were very much writing to a format. They had their strict notions of what was good for girls and what girls were good for. And honestly, no girl strays from that really narrow path. It's it's kind of like Nancy Drew, <clears throat> except that Nancy Drew never changes, okay? But his characters, they do grow, they do learn, they do change. It's still, but they still live in a school with the same mistresses. But it's it's not a it's, it doesn't have the same kind of like Nancy Drew never changes the Hardy Boys never change um, these these characters actually do change and new characters come in and um, it's it's uh, much much more interesting than the ones that um, those kind of stories that I grew up with. Oh, thank you. 
Well, one would think so. You also have you have monsters because you have the creatures on Mars, which can terrorize now and again. And there's there's not only a political aspect to it, but an interplanetary political aspect to it. So there's there's interesting opportunity to use a lot of that. Where you know, in the chalet school, certainly you got Nazis and Austria and the war, but even deeper than that, you have a whole very unfriendly space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the notion here, the rubric is that the British got Mars and established a colony and it's thriving. The Russians got Venus, which is hell on, hell on another planet. And basically they use it as, a, as they used to use Siberia. Um, as a place of exile and punishment, though it's also profitable for them because it's rich in resources. So yeah, the the Russians cast envious eyes on Mars and and back on Earth because these two great empires, the British Empire and the Russian Empire, have a planet each behind them. Other other countries don't develop into major political powers. The First World War doesn't happen between the Allies in Germany, because in Germany, the, uh, Victoria has not died. Victoria never dies. She's in a cocoon. She's the Empress Eternal. Um, the Kaiser being, you know, I, I, I forget, a nephew, a grandnephew, something of Queen Victoria would never antagonise the British. He just dared. So the, the war that happens on Earth and in space is between Britain and Russia. And they fight it out over disputed lands on earth um so t.t lawrence still gets to fight the turks but the russians try to invade mars um they they don't make it down onto the planet but they do seize the two moons phobos and deimos and after the armistice they keep control of phobos and deimos so the the brits on mars um are very aware that enemies are whizzing above their heads because Phobos and Deimos go around incredibly quickly, twice in the night sometimes. So, you know, they're always aware that, that Russian eyes are watching and Russian spies are always being infiltrated. It's very exciting. Is there an assumption, you made me think about Siberia. I mean, the reason Siberia wasn't just a place that people got exiled to. There was a lot of coal and petroleum coming out of there. Yeah, again, resources, yes. Presumably a ton of dead dinosaurs and precious metals. So is that the case for your Mars too, that uh, the crater school is on top of a delicious rich deposit or? <laughs> the crater school is safe. It's, it's built on the rim of a crater. So there's, there's honestly nothing to mine for that high up. When they do get to go underground, I mean, yeah, they are obviously steel is... Iron, iron is everywhere on Mars, um, so steel mills are great. And, and they have red coal, which burns a lot like coal coal, but is lighter, so they can, they, they can fuel airships with it before they, before they invent ways to turn it into a liquid fuel, which is easier and much safer than having, you know, um, shoveling coal on an airship. Yeah, no, but when they get to go deeper, into Mars, they're going to find strange and wondrous things, um, which I'm not going to tell you about because those haven't been published yet, because I haven't finished writing them yet. There's, a, there's, there's this book 
But that still goes back to the, so you you do kind of plot it out a little bit because you have an idea of what you want to happen. I have ideas in the sense that the, the, the general rubric for this whole adventure is if Mars were province of the British Empire, then so-and-so would certainly have gone there. Um, like Oscar Wilde went to Mars after after he was released from prison. T. E. Lawrence, I mentioned him before, totally goes to Mars when he's trying to reinvent himself under another name after the war. Kipl- Kipling would absolutely have gone to Mars because Kipling went everywhere. He was amazingly well-traveled. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I start, I start a story or a book, in Kipling's case, with the notion that if Mars were a province of the British Empire, Kipling would totally have gone there. And now let's see what happens. I, I would like to point out that you actually have published the Oscar Wilde on Mars story. Yep. What was that called? It's, it's called The Astrakhan, the Homburg and the Red, Red Coal. And it's... You'll find it on the Subterranean website because it was published in, the, I think, the final issue of Subterranean, the magazine. It was reprinted in a couple of best-ofs for the year um, and is in my own best-of collection, which is called Everything in All the Wrong Order, also from Subterranean. If people don't follow Subterranean books, they totally should. There's such a wonderful collection of writing out there. They are. They're lovely. I I, I am privileged. Nobody paid me to say that. (laughs) No, absolutely. I am privileged to do proofreading for them, which which they do pay me for, bless them. Um, And I get to read such wonderful books. I mean, mostly, mostly what they do is reprints of books that have already been successful. But these are beautiful, beautiful um, hardback, limited edition, signed, illustrated copies, and they're just gorgeous. But they, they also do, I think they may be the only publisher in the genre at the moment who are doing best of collections, which, oh yeah, the, this was a huge thing when I was discovering science fiction in the 60s and 70s. If not even collections, just, you know, I was remembering The Menace from Earth, which was Heinlein's set of short stories, and uh, yeah, right, right. It was it was a standard thing. Once an author was well established, a publisher would do a best of collection of his short stories. Very like rock and roll. Right, yeah, no collections certainly, um, and then best ofs, and then sometimes the very best of um, yeah. after after all the best ofs had run out. And and I don't think anybody does this anymore, except. Subterranean has brought it back as a thing, and they are doing best of collections for all sorts of fabulous writers, and I wholly recommend that you go and check them out. Yeah, I would like to say that um, when he uh, does his proofreading, I selflessly volunteer to help <laughs> because, you know, and every now and again I catch something that he misses, but um, the best of Michael Marshall Smith was just absolutely stunning and fabulous. The best of Walter John Williams, absolutely. And I've read some of those stories before, <laughs> and they were still just, oh, you know, very, very good. So, um, subterranean. Exactly. There's this secondary piece of this that I want to plug as a completely sideways thing. And this is just an observation that I read many, many things that people send me saying, hey, I've written a thing. I'd love to come talk. In programming terms, you cannot... QA and test your own code. You can't. And I just want to throw out there to writers of the world, have somebody else read everything, even if it's intensely personal, have somebody else read it who is pedantic as hell and can come up with the, if you are doing a plural of my daughters, you need to have the apostrophe on the outside. 
that sort of thing because you get blind to it. So good for you guys. <laughs> so yeah, I will I will pick out the apostrophes and so forth. Um, but I will also say hello. Um, in this paragraph, you said these statues were made of wood. And the next paragraph, you say they're made of clay. You might want to, you know, one or the other and things like that. This, this is this is my job, I figure. This is what I do for subterranean. It's it's I call it a copy proof because I will. I'm both copy editing and proofreading at the same time. He is pedantic as hell, and he's very good at it. So, are you are you writing the third one right now? And for those of us that are eagerly awaiting, ah. do you have an even projected imaginary time at which they might be available? Okay, so uh, yes, of course, I'm working on the third one. My Patreon subscribers, my patrons, whom I love, are seeing it happen chapter by chapter. The rest of you have to wait until I finish it. I'm, I'm like halfway through. Um, it's called Mary Ellen Criterion, and it is a tribute to my late mother-in-law, Karen's mum, Mary Ellen, who was a joy and a delight, and and I am embodying her in 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 the character of this new girl at um at, at the Crater School. Fantastic. And then my next question yes. is going to be. I understand you told us all that you were writing about Mrs. Bailey's cookbook, and Mrs. Bailey is the chef at the Crater School. Um, I think cook rather than chef, but yes, absolutely. She would describe herself as a plain English Martian cook. Wonderful. And if we brought her to any other restaurant, they'd say, I have eaten some of her cooking and it is divine. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the joys about Mars is that because the Brits have this whole sodding planet to fill, immigration is... You know, it's the ideal that America was founded on. You bring us your poor, your dispossessed. And and they are open to immigration from everyone, at least until the war happens and, and they have to clamp down a bit because Russian spies. Yeah, so there are communities all across the province from all over the world. And because, because, you know, we start with the British Empire, there are lots of Indians, there are lots of Chinese, there are there are lots of people from everywhere, but there, um, there's also there's a Basque community because they're fleeing oppression in Spain. Um, and like that, I get to give them a new start and a new home. And and so the culinary influences are wide and many and broad and exciting and fun. And Mrs. Bailey, bless her, she may be a plain English Martian cook, but she is open to everything. And she she. She gleans recipes from her friends, from visitors, from the girls particularly, because they have girls from all over, from all sorts of communities. And she, she, will, she will take their native recipes with glee. She cooks for 200 girls and a couple of dozen staff. She must call that Thursdays. Exactly. But she does this every day, three times a day. But, and, but also um, in school holidays. She has her friend who she goes and stays with um, and they have discreet little dinner parties where she can, she can do things for them which are not conducive to being you know, ramped up to 250 portions. Can, can we prevail upon you to read one of them? Do you have any <laughs> of them scribed down? <laughs> um, yeah, um, you can find them all on Mrs. Bailey's Martian Kitchen from Medium. There are, I don't know, 70-odd recipes there now, I think. But as it happens, 
because this is citrus season in the UK at this time, all your markets are full of Seville oranges coming over from Spain. And, and here in California, where I am now, I have my little Seville tree in my backyard. It's not little anymore. <laughs> it is less little than it used to be. It's still quite little, but it gave me 33 fruits this year which made a dozen jars of marmalade. Uh, and I am from Oxford, and Oxford marmalade is a thing. It is a thing because of a guy called Frank Cooper, who initially set up a business as a grocer on Oxford High Street. Um, and then his wife started making marmalade, and he started selling marmalade through the shop. And that just took over everything. Um, so he built factories in Oxford and Frank Cooper's Oxford Marmalade. I have this recipe. This is, this is the recipe for Mrs. Bailey's Oxford Marmalade. Along with the Scots and the steam engine, Frank Cooper's Oxford Marmalade has long been one of the building blocks of empire. Wherever the British are to be found, there'll be a tin or a jar of this bittersweet benevolence on the breakfast table. That is to say, wherever on earth the British are to be found. Mars is another story. Imports are prohibitively expensive. And for some unfathomable reason, this particular delicacy has been classified and taxed as a luxury item rather than the essential that it actually obviously is. No matter, Martians are very well used to making do and making their own. As it happens, the Seville Orange thrives canal side all up and down the province. Come the back end of winter and the first hint of spring, Mrs. Bailey enlists all the help she can from schoolgirls and kitchen maids together and devotes a week to chopping and boiling and bottling her own Oxford marmalade. Seville oranges are crucial here, except no substitutes. First, Weigh your oranges, write down that number. Now put the oranges together with an equal weight of water and a little more if necessary, just enough to make sure the oranges are afloat in a large maslin pan, jam pan or stock pot. If you only make a small batch, you will wish you had made more, trust me on this. Bring to the boil, simmer for an hour uncovered and then turn off the heat. Leave the oranges soaking in the water overnight. Next day, line a colander with doubled cheesecloth and put it in a bowl. Set a chopping board inside a rimmed baking tray. This is one of Mrs. B's strokes of genius. The tray will catch stray juices and be sure that none is wasted. Pick the oranges out of the orangey water and slice each one in half. Scoop out the insides, pulp and seeds together and set them in the cheesecloth lined colander. Chop the rinds not too finely and add them back to the orangey water. When all the oranges have been so treated, gather up the edges of the cheesecloth and knot them securely. And seriously securely, mine opened up this year and I have seeds in my, in my marmalade. Um, edges of the cheesecloth and knot them securely. Squeeze out as much juice as you can from the colander and into the bowl which will already have gathered a fair amount just from drippings. Now add your cheesecloth parcel to the pan, along with all that squeezed juice plus whatever has collected in the baking tray once you remove your chopping board therefrom. Remember that number, your original weight of oranges? Add that weight of sugar to the pan. Stir it in 
and heat the pan slowly until the sugar has dissolved. Then bring it to the boil and let it cook down. The longer you cook it, the darker and better it gets, which is why it doesn't hurt at all to have added a little more water than is strictly necessary back at the beginning. While the marmalade is cooking, sterilize your jars according to the customs of your country. Once the marmalade starts to darken and thicken, stir frequently. You can start checking the temperature at this point. 222 degrees Fahrenheit is a good number to aim for. If you don't have a thermometer, put a saucer in the freezer and stand by to run the wrinkle test. A thermometer is better. Once the marmalade is ready, jar it up and seal the batch according again to the customs of your country. Label it as your very own Oxford marmalade and look forward to a future full of excellent breakfasts and possibly founding your own empire. Hmm. I think we should absolutely found our own empires on that. That's beautiful. And the marmalade is, in fact, delicious. He's just made some. So, yeah. Yeah. I have made this year's batch. I haven't tried this year's, but you left, you gave me a jar last year, and I'm very keen to have it again. Excellent. We can do that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I love this stuff, which is a great shame because I don't eat breakfast at the moment. But I love making it anyway. So, so it is pretty much there for Karen and for Shane. Couldn't it be used instead of a pineapple upside down cake? Couldn't you do it with orange marmalade? Hmm. Yes, you could. Um, there is a better. There is an orange marmalade steamed pudding with a toffee sauce over the top. Karen uh, is looking at me at this point with big eyes. Yeah, I can do that for you, sweet. <laughs> um, yeah, orange marmalade is a fine and a fabulous thing. The tragedy of Seville oranges is that their season is short. You can pick, if you have an excess, you can pick the excess and juice it and have um, bitter orange juice available throughout the year. I'm hoping that my tree will eventually get that big and do that much. The oranges themselves make such good... I, uh, uh, a Seville orange sauce with duck is to die for. Oh, yes. It is. Um, and, and it always makes me think when I hear you say that Seville, I think of Shakespeare. Seville is an orange and something of that jealous complexion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, before we sounded off on this, I wanted to pause and say thank you for reading it. And thank you for telling us about the latest in the uh, Crater books. Karen had a poem came out, and I wanted to take just one moment and say, Neil himself appreciated your response to his poem. Yes, he did. I was. And how cool was that? Oh, oh, come on. Uh, yeah, how cool was that? Come on. Neil Gaiman is Neil Gaiman. Yes. So, so remind everybody of where they can find that as well. It's called the um, the other day the saucers came, and it is on fantasymagazine.com, and it may still be there. But what was really interesting was that I thought his original poem was told from a male point of view to women. He said it was not gendered. The um, comic I saw it in had gendered it. And we had a really interesting kind of back and forth about that. And also the concept of writing poems to respond to poems, which again has been around forever. But um, he had not actually had anyone respond to his poems before. So I thought that was really cool too. I wrote a Locasta's response after, a, I think it was John Donne poem years ago. Yeah, yes. Locasta had a whole lot to say, and it was during a romantic time in my life. <laughs> okay. I'm astonished that Locasta had so much to say. She had a lot. Yeah. 
Excellent. And uh, I suppose I've already asked when things are coming out, is there anything besides this one that you're working on right oh, now? Oh, hell yes. Um, I have, I mean, again, on the Patreon, I'm not, it's not just Crater School, though that was the original form factor um, that I applied to it. There, there are now two, a couple of unfinished novels up there. One of the lovely things about writing about schoolgirls on Mars is that eventually they stop being schoolgirls and head out into the real world of Mars. You can say galaxy. And, and, <laughs> and I started, you know, inevitably, if you start a series with a school, uh, unless you're building that school from scratch, which I wasn't, it had already been in place for a generation, then you have a head girl in place. Uh, and I had Rowanie Devere because it is necessary that your head girl be mighty and a little bit terrifying and indomitable and all sorts of you know high major qualities. And as I was writing the um, the first book, people were appealing for more Rowanie, and so most of the short stories that I've written alongside have featured Rowanie in one form or another. Yeah, she inevitably has to leave school because she was head girl. That was her last year of school. Um, so I sneakily found a way to bring her back for an extra year because she failed her Oxford entrance, allegedly. But there are there are more books going forward about Roni Devere in her life after school. Um, and, and I love these. And I'm writing two of them simultaneously, which is totally a mistake. But one of them is a noir crime thriller and the other is you had me at crime but noir just you know i know right <laughs> and the, the other is much more a spy war story but anyway um so yeah there is there's a lot of stuff happening on the patreon and you can sign up for three bucks a month which is you know i mean you'd buy me a coffee a month wouldn't you totally i i would especially if I you know. showed up to coffee no. in the morning i know at the beans um, Anybody in Sunnyvale should take yes. their coffee at the bean scene. Just saying, Kenny is a wonderful person. He really is, and he makes great coffee. I, I also, uh, again from Wizard Tower Press, who are publishing the Creative School books, they are republishing my fantasy series um, from the 1990s, the Utremer books, the books of Utremer, which was published in the UK as a trilogy and in America as six slender volumes. And, and I actually prefer the American edition because I got to re-edit and cut a lot, frankly. So, so, yeah, six books will be coming in fairly rapid sequence. The first is The Devil in the Dust, and I've just finished the final proofread. And that should, we hope it'll be up for pre-orders this month and, and should be published next month. Yeah, I know, I'm very excited. This, you know, this book, um, it was my first venture into fantasy. Can't and, wait. And I love it dearly. And it hasn't really been available or within the consciousness, within the conversation um, for 20 years or so. So so we get to bring it back now. And I love that. It's really good. I, I might have read it myself. Uh, and um, yes, it's quite good. She's no. my wife. And, you know, she. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. it should be a requirement. I need you to speak to my husband about it. He doesn't oh. like it when I kill off children. Oh, well. What? You know, I know, right? Killing off children is so much part of the fun. Well, and I might say that I haven't read everything that he's written for exactly that reason. By the way, speaking of <laughs> things being written, I would like to mention that I got my first fan mail a couple of days ago because <laughs> I had a story come out in Daily Science Fiction. And if anyone is interested, it's called Super Period, Hero Period. And so you can look for Superhero by Karen Brinchley. And it's a very short, but apparently, according to um, all the responses I've got, a very powerful story. So just saying. I would like to throw out a two plugs out there for all of the people that we have interviewed and all of the writers and all of you listeners who simply apparently love literature or hearing us blather on. If you buy books on a site, the most wonderful thing you can do if you like the book is to go out and write a I really liked it uh, accommodation online, especially Amazon, because if they don't have at least 20 they don't get recommended to other people. And word of mouth is good, but algorithms are even better. Gone up to 30. Uh, I, I, I have heard 50. Nobody really knows the Amazon algorithm. But yeah, and the, more, the more reviews, the better on Amazon and on Goodreads. If reading has gotten you through these times in COVID, be it poetry, be it books, short stories, novels, essays, if it's an essay somewhere out on Medium and you can do nothing more than send a note of saying, I really liked that, your artists are out there and sometimes dealing with their own emotional ups and downs and hearing that somebody loves you, it really can make a difference. And if you're willing to write it down on the website and recommend it with stars, that of course helps them too because artists also need to pay the bills. That is your official uh, plug for please read artists and go comment. Frankly, even if you hate it, comment anyway. Thank you, Jeannie. And yes, I mean, you, you can write a bad review. That is as much use to the author as a good review, because the algorithm doesn't test the quality of reviews. It just tests the number. I'm a contrarian, Chaz. So I also want to say sometimes I look at the one-star reviews first to say, what do, what do they hate? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and the other thing I, I should just mention, ahem, Three Twins at the Crater School is currently poised on something like 46 reviews on Amazon. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting over 50, we think is significant. Um, so, so if you felt, you know, if you've read Three Twins and you felt, mm, yeah. Any four people, I swear, I will buy you a cup of coffee. Just tell me you did it. I'll check and I'll get you a coffee card. <laughs> anyway, we're going to put links to the stories and all the other interesting things we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love email. We love ratings. We love snarky remarks. Hate us, love us. Tell us, we love hearing from you guys. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is Bitsy. Okay, David Welsh. <laughs> our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Langberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. Tragically, you have to go to Australia these days to hear him in person. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, who has let you all buy really awesome WDC swag. And hey, thanks for listening out there. Mm -hmm.